All right, guys. My name's Drew. For those of you who don't know me, before we jump into the Word, I wanted to give you guys a quick update on Home. So for those of you who don't know, Home is our building campaign. A couple weeks ago, we met in our new facility. We talked about what God was calling us to in terms of next steps. And I feel like we all are stepping slowly together into this faith journey that God has for us regarding our money and the building and all that. So I wanted to let you guys know that just in the last couple weeks that many of you have already given, you overachievers, and $220,000 has already been given toward our million-dollar first goal. So um, if you want the details on that, just so you know, there's a QR code that you can scan that kind of pulls up our pledge card where you can actually make your first gift and make your pledges and those types of things. There's also pledge cards out on the table out there. And uh, so you can get all your information ready to go. Just to clarify, next week, what we're looking for is a million dollars given and an additional $800,000 pledged for the following year and an additional $800,000 pledged for the following year for a total of 2.6 million. So that feels like a gut punch. It does to me too. You're not alone, but we're, we're in this together. And I actually feel like the text of scripture that we're gonna be in together this morning is a place that God's led us. So I'll often say to our young teachers, the reason that we teach through the Bible verse by verse is something I call expositional preaching magic. And here's what that means is basically we plan out our schedule for teaching a year in advance, having no idea what's coming in the life of our church. And I often feel like I'm opening up the text of Scripture to teach that week, and I'm saying to myself, no way. I can't believe God has us in this exact passage of Scripture. So here's what I feel like is happening in in many of your lives. So our church has always been a church in transition. And what I mean by that is there's people graduating from college, there's people coming into college, there's people who are getting married, there's people who are becoming parents for the first time. And I feel like that's all sort of coming to a head right now, and people are realizing how impactful the decisions that they're making for their life are right now. And I think that what this building campaign is doing for us is it's asking the question of all of our soul, what do you want your life to really be about? Because Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so it's testing, yes, our pocketbook, but it's also testing our heart with God and what our life is really about. Will we trust him or will we live in our own strength? And so I think what the text is going to say to us this morning, it's going to pull us back into faith and it's going to say that God provides in both miraculous and ordinary ways as we walk in faith with him. So we're going to see three examples of that. The first example of God's provision that we're going to see is that he provides essentials to survive. So look with me at Exodus chapter 17. We're picking up the story in verse 3. We're just going to read through verse 6 to start. But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? 
So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Okay, so this story sounds familiar because we've seen the Israelites do a very similar thing at Marah. Right when they crossed the Red Sea, they came to a body of water. They didn't have any water to drink. They tasted the water. The water was super bitter. And their immediate response was to complain against Moses and to grumble against him and thereby grumble against God. And we see basically a repeat of the exact same event, which is like a mirror to our own souls. How often do we repeat the same patterns of sin and grumbling against God when it comes to the essentials of our lives? We think that we learn the lesson here, and then we move on a little bit further, and we're doing the exact same thing again. They take it up a notch, though, this time, and they say to Moses, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So they go after their leader's motivation, and they say, yeah, that whole bringing us out of Egypt thing, that wasn't to rescue us from slavery in Egypt. That was actually because your intention was to bring us to this moment so that you could watch us all die. It's a ridiculous accusation that the Israelites are making. And so they're grumbling against Moses. But what I was thinking as I was thinking about this passage, there's obviously a a very negative aspect to their grumbling. Uh, They're not trusting God. They're not trusting Moses. They uh, have seen God's provision in the past. They're not remembering that. But I was also thinking this is a step in a positive direction. Follow, follow me on this, okay? So the Israelites were slaves in Egypt before. Here's what would never happen if you were a slave in Egypt. You would never grumble against your captors. You would never grumble against your slave master. You just say, yes, sir, no, sir, and you move on with your day because you know that as soon as you start complaining or grumbling, you're dead. You're finished. Grumbling is a sign of trust. Now, it's it's an intermediate step. The Israelites aren't supposed to stop at grumbling, but what it's saying is there's enough trust that they have in their relationship with Moses in their relationship with God, that they're starting to be able to express their true feelings. And I wonder if some of us this morning have thought that we're walking in trust in God, but we're actually walking in a type of subservience and slavery, that we haven't even gotten to the point of grumbling. 
And, and you read through the Psalms in the Bible, and you recognize that these people have very real and raw relationships with God. They have very real emotions, and when they don't like things that are going on, they'll often grumble. And it's not that God pats us on the back for our grumbling and says, that's okay, you can stay in that place, but it actually gives him a context to deal with our hearts when we reveal them and just admit where we are, when we're authentic. So I would encourage you that maybe grumbling is your next step. No, it's not a great one. It's kind of yucky but maybe try it, all right? So, so they're grumbling. Um, I thought about this uh, in relationship to being a parent. So all you parents are gonna understand this. You know, one of my kids for two years straight at dinner would throw a fit about what we were having for dinner. And every single night at dinner, it was just part of the routine, I would take this child and throw them over my shoulder like a sack of potatoes and take them into a back bedroom and set them on a bed. And I would say, hey, when you're ready to come out and not scream and yell and complain, then you can rejoin us for dinner. And take them in there. Sure enough, they'd come out. Still a little bit of complaining, still a little bit of yelling, still a little bit of screaming. But night after night after night, for over 700 days in a row, this happened. This was part of our lives. And do you know what? The punishment for that grumbling and complaining was never, I'm not going to provide for your needs anymore. I'm not going to let you eat. Now, okay, now imagine that you come over to my house, and we put food in front of you, and you start complaining and all that it's over. Like, just leave, right? I'm not feeding you anymore, right? Why? What's the difference? Those are my kids. I, I am in it. I am going to provide for them. I am going to love them. I am going to lay down my life for them because I have made a commitment to them that cannot be broken even by their worst behavior. Here's what we see from God. We are not his slaves. We are his sons. And because of that, he will put up with our brokenness and our real junk. He will not turn his back on you because of your sin. He will, like he did with the Israelites, continue to care for your essential needs, even if you are kicking and screaming. Sometimes he does it in miraculous ways, like this, but I think that the miraculous things are put in the Bible to open our eyes to the ordinary ways that God provides for us. He provides for us through our jobs. He provides for us through other people's hard work, and he gives us food and drink and shelter each day whether we acknowledge him or not, whether we thank him or not, whether we grumble against him or not. Here's the question. How can that be when God is just and God is perfect? In other words, God doesn't grumble and complain. God is overflowing with 
perfection. And the Bible makes clear throughout that God, yes, he's merciful and gracious, but he's also holy, which means his eyes can't even look at our sin. And we see God call Moses to do something interesting. That's to strike a rock at Horeb and for water to come out. Now, I don't know about you, I wouldn't have really thought anything about that. I wouldn't have thought, oh, that's pointing to something else, or that's an illustration for something else. But there's actually a New Testament writer named Paul who makes a comment about this passage. In 1 Corinthians 10.4, he says, And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Paul says the rock was Christ. And so here's what he's trying to help us to see. The reason that God didn't strike the Israelites dead in the wilderness, the reason that he treated them as sons, is because the rock was their substitute. So in other words, what God was illustrating for them was, this is what you deserve. But he says the rock was pointing us to Christ. So your conscience is going to say, wait, but I can't get away with brokenness. I can't get away with grumbling. I can't get away with sin in relationship to God. I see it all over this whole book. I'm not supposed to do this, and I'm not supposed to do that. And you could read the Ten Commandments, and I take that as like a list, a to-do list for me every day. And I'm not great at following God. So how can God put up with me? And the answer is Jesus became your substitute. Jesus took the punishment that you deserve. And when Jesus was struck with suffering at the hands of his father in our place, sin and grumbling and junk didn't come out, water came out. Our essential spiritual needs were met by him. Think about when Jesus was on the cross, at his moment of most excruciating suffering, he looked at the crowd below the cross and he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And it's in these words and in this spirit that we have life. Because the God who suffered for us provides everything that we need. And so if Jesus has provided for us eternal life in his suffering, won't we trust him to provide our daily needs as we step out in faith to follow him? Won't we trust him to provide money as we give? Won't we trust him to provide food and shelter and drink along the way. Okay, so that's the first thing we see, essentials to survive. The second thing we see that God provides for us in both miraculous and ordinary ways is strength in battle. Okay, look with me at verses 8 through 13 of Exodus 17. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua 
did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so that they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Okay, so this is the first time since the Israelites have escaped from Egypt that they are involved in hand-to-hand combat. So there's a very ordinary thing that happens here. There's an attacking army of Amalek. They challenge Israel to battle. Israel basically has no choice. They have to fight or be wiped out. And so Joshua is named the commander of the army in a pinch, and he gets a bunch of guys together, and they go down onto the battlefield. Moses is in his 80s. He's like, nope, I'm going up on the hill. So he goes up on the hill, and he's got Aaron and Hur with him, and they're standing up on this hill. And we don't get the explanation as to why, but God somehow communicates to Moses and Aaron and Hur that for the Israelites to continue to prevail in battle, Moses' hands have to be up. And his staff's got to be in his hands. But this is a long, all-day type battle. And so Moses is up there, and he's holding his hands up for a while. But some of you people know, like, I got weak shoulders. I'd, I'd probably be able to do that for like 30 minutes, you know? And I'd just be like, oh, I'm tired, you know? And so Moses is getting tired, his shoulders are weak. He's like, oh man, this is, this is rough. He's, I, I imagine him like switching the staff between hands because, you know, the, the hand with the staff in it is a little bit heavier. And he's, he's holding his hands up. He's doing his best, but his hands are starting to, to sink. And Aaron and her are noticing this. And so they grab a big rock. They're like, this dude needs a seat, first of all. And they sit him down. And then in a beautiful illustration of dependence on God and others, they're standing on either side of him holding up his hands. Part of the reason I think they had him sit down too is it's a lot easier to hold somebody's hand up here than here, right? Because then it's just like you got to hold your arms up to hold his arms up, and they're like, we got to figure this out. So these guys were thinking about how to do this. So they're holding his arms up, and as a result, the battle is won on the battlefield, which I think there's something to teach us in this passage about what it looks like for us to fight our spiritual battles. Because sometimes, like the Israelites, an unexpected, unprovoked spiritual battle will come into our lives. A battle against our own sin, a seeming disagreement or disunifying thing will happen with somebody unexpectedly in our connection group or within the church or with a family member, and we will be totally caught off guard and not know what to do. And in those situations, God might ask us to do something that doesn't make a lot of sense to us to represent our dependence on him. So I think part of the reason God had Moses hold his arms up is the same reason that we hold our hands up sometimes in worship. It's 
not to draw attention to ourselves, but it's sort of this desperation, like, God, if you don't show up, then we're done. And so God might ask you to do something like fast or spend a certain amount of time in prayer or up your Bible reading or go for more walks during the day, get out into nature. He might ask you to do something to up your dependence because of the strength of the battle. But then he might also ask you to show a different level of vulnerability with the people around you and to let them in. So the interesting thing that I think this passage is teaching us is sometimes dependence on God is not enough. You know, in uh, Genesis, really early on in the Bible, uh, Adam is walking with God, and he has perfect relationship. Sin hasn't even entered the world yet, and God says to Adam, it's not good that you should be alone. So there's this very real sense in that God made us, yes, for dependence on him, but also for dependence on one another. And so we have this beautiful illustration of what it looks like to have true friends in Christ who will help you in the battle to depend on God. You know, guys, this uh, last week, I was at our executive team meeting, and, you know, we had launched the building campaign, we had gotten through Easter, and I just had a discouraging day. And I just went into executive team, and I don't think they'd, they'd ever seen me like this before in the history of our church. And I just said to them, frankly, I was like, I don't think we're going to be able to raise all this money. And I, I was just feeling like, it, why did we do this? Why did we step out into faith and do this? Like, it just felt like stupid. And so I'm starting to try to lead this meeting into like a contingency plan, right? Like, okay, because our basic assumption, even though I've been telling everybody to have faith, is God's not going to show up. And because of that, here's what we need to do. And they listen to me and, you know, they're humble, godly people. And so they listen to me and we got done with the meeting and I'm sitting there and uh, Kaylee Hunting looks at me and she says, Drew, what does Philippians 4.19 say? And this is how bad of a place I was in. I go, I don't know. <laughs> Have you ever been there where somebody asks you just a, like, what's John 3.16? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. And she's, you know, started laughing at me, quoted it. And then Jennifer Tuttle <clears throat> chimed into the conversation and and she reminded me, she said, he has been faithful, he is faithful, he will be faithful. Do you know how much that stinks when somebody just takes your sermon and just like gives it back to you? <laughs> Dang it. That was my sermon a couple weeks ago. Um, but here, here's the reality. And then I read this passage and I was like, oh, that's what happened. I need other people in my life to hold my hands up. Guys, this church 
I mean, God help us if this church is built on me. My gifts, my faith, my charisma, my enthusiasm, or anybody else's. We look to God together. And I really do believe that we're in a a battle right now for our hearts and minds. And I think some of you are feeling that along with me as you're taking this step of faith in our church alongside me. You're feeling this like, like, like the temperature's getting turned up in your life. And you're trying to figure out, okay, what do we do and how do we go forward? And I think the only way that we can go forward is we have to do it together. Yes, we depend on God, but we have also just got to be authentic. And sometimes that means that we're going to express just weariness and tiredness and sin and brokenness to each other. As how are you feeling? I mean, maybe it's related to the step of faith that we're taking as a church. Maybe it's related to something totally different. But where are you feeling weary in the battle? But maybe you're, you're still trying to, to fake it. You know, I'm, I'm guessing there was a period when Moses had his hands up where he didn't want to admit how weak he was. And he was just like, I'm good, guys. I'm good. Nope, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm good. And then there was a breaking point, right? And maybe you're just before the breaking point, but you need to let some people into your life and just say, I'm tired. I can't do this alone anymore. I need prayer for my marriage, for my kids, for a conflict with a friend. I need help from this community. And what we learn over and over again through the story of the Bible, that it's not the strong that God is recruiting, but it's the weak and the dependent. Those who really daily need him. That's who he gives strength to. Okay, so we see that God is providing for us essentials to survive, strength in battle. And the final thing we see is wisdom for living. Okay, verses 14 through 23 of Exodus 18 is we're going to end. It says, When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is that that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men and all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens." And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. 
If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure. And all this people also will go to their place in peace. Okay, so Jethro, it's Moses' father-in-law. He's come from the outside. He was watching Moses' kids and had invited Moses' wife back into his house. And now he brought Moses' wife and kids to rejoin the Israelites. And he sees that Moses is not only acting as the leader, sort of the kingly figure in Israel, but he's also acting as the judge. So there are a million people plus in Israel at this point, and there is one judge. And so people are lined up. I mean, I'm guessing it goes on for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of yards. And Moses is deciding case after case after case after case. And this is not easy stuff to decide. This is difficult material. And it's heavy because there's always emotions involved in judicial matters. And people feel deeply wronged. And some people are getting angry. And um, people are getting vengeful. And Moses is trying to keep a clear head and decide what's right. And Jethro, coming from the outside, which often happens when somebody gets their eyes on something from the outside, they see it a little bit differently. He sees what's going on, and he simply says, what you are doing is not good. What's he saying? Not that Moses' intentions are not good, not that he's not trying to do good, but what he's saying is, you are going about this in an unwise manner. And he gives him strategic advice. He says, you need to appoint men to help you with the judicial responsibilities that you have. And he gives basically two qualifications for these men that Moses ought to be looking for. He's saying, you're looking for people who have a certain type of character and a certain type of capacity. So you look at character, he says, look for able men who fear God, who are trustworthy, and who hate a bribe. So he's saying, you want guys who know the difference between justice and injustice, and they have the ability to carry that out. So you don't want to just pick arbitrarily, you want to take your time and go through a process and get the right people in place to do the job. And then the second thing he says is that you want the people's role to reflect their capacity. So I'm getting that from where he says that he's supposed to place some over groups of thousands, some over groups of hundreds, some over groups of fifties, some over groups of ten. So he recognizes that capacity is not a character issue. Capacity is God-given strength. And so he's saying there's some people who are going to have the capacity to judge a thousand people, and there's going to be some people who have a capacity to judge only ten people, and you need to be able to discern the difference and recognize that everybody has a role within this ecosystem in terms of judgment. And Moses, being a wise man, listens to Jethro's advice and puts that into practice. 
See, what's so easy for us to do as Christians is to justify not listening to good advice and call it something spiritual. See, Moses could have said, but God's called me to do this. But God called me to be the king and judge. And so you're wrong and you don't recognize the authority that God has given me. He could have said, well, you're from the outside and you're not really an Israelite and so I shouldn't have to listen to you. See, Christianity can be so heavenly-minded that it's of no earthly good. That's true. We can be such people of prayer and such people of Bible reading and then be people who have no common sense. This is calling us to listen to good common sense. You don't turn your brain off to be a Christian. Have you guys heard the illustration? I'm sure this has been used a thousand times in a sermon, but I'm going to use it anyway because it's kind of good. Have you guys heard the, the story of the guy who's at the gates of heaven and he's talking to God and, and he's died and he says to God, well, why didn't you save me when the flood came? And God recounts what actually happened and the guy had been in the middle of a flood and he's, he's you know, treading water, and one boat comes by, and the guy says, hey, can I give you a ride to safety? He says, nope, I don't need a ride to safety. God's going to save me. And then another boat comes by, and he says, hey, do you need a ride to safety? He says, no, I don't need a ride to safety. God's going to save me. And then a third boat comes by, and he says, hey, I'm the last boat in the line. This is your last chance. And he says, nope, God's going to save me. And he's sitting there treading water. He finally runs out of strength and drowns and dies, and now he's standing before God. And he says, God, why didn't you save me? And he says, well, I sent three boats. Right? Guys, it, in this process, like specifically related to where we're at as a church, it is wise to have like the house that you're looking at inspected. It is wise to have a financial planner as you look at the amount of money that you're going to give to the church. It is wise to ask older people in our church the way that they've parented their kids before and the mistakes that they've made and also the good things that they've done. So we don't want to, as we follow God, make the mistake of being so spiritual that we don't listen to wisdom. There are a number of different categories for behavior that we see in the Bible. And I think often as Christians, what we do is we put things into the categories of like, this is sin, and this is not sin, and if it's not sin, then it's okay for me to do it. Let me add another category for you. There are things that are sin, there are things that are not sin, but there are also things that are not sin that are stupid. Like, it is possible to just be an idiot as a Christian and do a bunch of stupid stuff. Like, it would be stupid to never cut your lawn and then have to pay fines in your neighborhood because you never cut your lawn. Now, that's not necessarily sinful, but it's just stupid, right? And there's a whole lot of things that we're doing all the time that are in that category of stupidity that we don't even know are stupid because we're not humble enough to ask people like Jethro for help and advice. Okay, so on this path of walking faith in God, 
God is here. He's providing our essential needs. This is represented and demonstrated for us in the death of Jesus. He is also giving us strength in battle as we humbly depend on him. And he's giving us wisdom. So here's the reality. All of us should walk away with confidence today that God is for us and we can do this. We can do whatever he's calling us to do because he is strengthening us to do it. So let's just bow in humble dependence on him to close here. Um, Jesus, thank you that you have uh, demonstrated your love for us in that while we were still sinners, you died for us. And that because of that, we can trust you to provide everything that we need. Would you help us to be dependent on you in a, yes, supernatural, miraculous way, but also in a, in a practical, down-to-earth, real-world way? And would you let us know how uh, we've stepped outside of your wisdom, your design, and would you graciously and gently bring us back as our Father and let us each know what the next step you want us to take is. In Jesus' name.